Over the weekend, the San Diego Union-Tribune published the second part in a series investigating the U.S. asylum system. Restricting the system has been a goal of the Trump administration, but data shows that even before Trump, this system was not perfect. The Union-Tribune analyzed 10 years of immigration court records and found that numerous, seemingly arbitrary factors can sway the results. The second part of this series asked the question, who gets asylum? From the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Kate Morrissey, you're the immigration reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, and with many of our colleagues, you've been working on this project, which really defines the U.S. asylum system and provides a really deep dive into how it works and how it does or doesn't live up to promises. So first, uh, for this conversation, we kind of need to establish what this system is. Can you set some definitions? What is this system and how is it supposed to work for people seeking asylum? Yeah, so we're we're particularly looking at the part of the system that addresses asylum for people who arrive at our border and ask for protection there. So either they come to a port of entry or maybe they they cross over the border and find a border patrol agent and, and make that request sort of as they're entering the country. Um, there is a, a separate thing for somebody who comes here on, on some kind of visa and then realizes they can't go home uh, because something has happened. Uh, there's a separate process. And so just to be clear, we're not talking about that. We're, we're really focusing on what happens for people who come to the border and that uh, mostly takes place inside the immigration court system. So um, you're talking about an adversarial process where you have a judge in front of you and you have an attorney representing the U S government who's trying to argue against your case. And so everything, everything that we're looking at is sort of in that, in that space. And so um, just in terms of, of what asylum is, because I think, uh, that's an important definition to cover. Asylum uh, is granting uh, protection to people who are fleeing their home countries because of very specific reasons. There are five of them. That is uh, race, uh, religion, political opinion, uh, nationality, membership in a social group, which is the one that gets like kind of the the fuzziest or has the most like ongoing debate in terms of how the law works. Uh, and there's a second layer to that, which is that your, um, your claim or your, your persecution, this thing that you're fleeing has to either be caused by the government in the country that you're fleeing from, or it has to be caused by a group that that government cannot or will not control. And so when you show up in immigration court, you have to prove how your sort of life story lines up with that definition. And so, um, yeah, I, th- I think that covers, did I miss the definition or is that? Yeah, I think you covered everything. But it seems like when it comes to asylum itself, it is a process that has a relatively high bar, but at the same time, it is kind of the, I would suppose, define it as moral authority of the United States saying that, you know, if you're being persecuted for who you are, there is a place for you to go so in what ways historically has the U.S. kind of met that promise and when have we fallen short? Because your analysis shows that it wasn't exactly rosy, you know, several administrations ago either. So the asylum system itself is part of a, part of a much larger framework that um, was created after World War II. 
So um, a bunch of countries got together in sort of this subcommittee meeting as part of the newly formed United Nations and said, okay, uh, we failed to take care of Jewish migrants who were fleeing the atrocities of the Holocaust. Um, and there are specific examples of like ships of, of Jewish migrants being turned away from the United States during that time, right? And so, but we were by no means the un- only country who you could lay that fault against. And so a bunch of countries got together and said, we should do something uh, to establish a framework to, to help all of the people who are still displaced from this atrocity um, and then establish something more like going forward. And so there were there were a series of, of treaties that were signed. Um, we signed on in the 60s to this treaty and said, okay, yes, we're gonna be a part of this. We are going to help protect the world's most vulnerable people who are fleeing these kinds of things. Um, but we didn't actually, actually codify that system into law until 1980 as part of the Refugee Act. Um, and so before that, the the president of the United States would sort of say, oh, there's there's something terrible happening over here. Let's take some of those folks in. And it was very sort of ad hoc. And so the, the law in 1980 really said, okay, this is how we're going to do this. Um, but even back then in the 80s, there were problems of, of systemic bias, particularly um, when you look at whether someone was fleeing a country that... Uh, the, the people in power were communist or not communist. And so you saw very different um, asylum results for people fleeing Nicaragua versus people fleeing Guatemala and El Salvador. Um, and so there were some efforts made in the early 90s to try and rectify that. But since then, we've continued to see studies, you know, in the early 2000s coming out about these discrepancies and ours is sort of the latest in this history of studies showing that all throughout the history of the system, there have been discrepancies and biases that can can add weight to the, the way that decisions happen or, or influence outcomes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is kind of cynical, but it does make sense that immigration and asylum seeking it sometimes does become a political tool. It, it has been a way for the U.S. to comment on the, the human rights abuses that it wants to call out in countries that it specifically wants to call out, right? There was um, one of the professors who I talked to about this um, sort of hit that point home with me that it's, it's a way for the U.S. to critique countries by taking in people from those countries, um, and so, you know, early on, the system actually had um, a lot of review from officials in the State Department. So so that foreign policy influence was very uh, sort of obvious. Um, now it's it's shifted a little bit. They, they restructured things after that. Um, but there is still uh, discrepancies, for example, in in which nationalities we see. Um, you know, having an easier time getting protection. Um, and some of that does seem to be based on these same kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And it does seem that geography plays an outsized role when it comes to this entire system, not only, as you mentioned, from where you come from, if you're an asylum seeker, but also where you choose to cross the border, where you choose to go to a port of entry, and also which judge sees your case. Can you kind of give us an overview of the geographic disparities that occur once someone enters the asylum system? Yeah, so 
there are a lot of things that can influence where you end up waiting for your case. And that where uh, is super important because uh, where you end up dictates which immigration court is assigned to your case. And that dictates sort of which pool of judges will be pulled, will be pulled from for you to be randomly assigned on, on someone's docket. And uh, there are, very different sets of, of grant and denial rates among judges at the same court and, and across courts. And so, you know, that where you end up in that sort of lottery uh, can make a really big difference. And so uh, when someone comes to the border, um, there the initial decision from the government of, are we going to detain this person in custody or are we going to release this person while they wait for their case is something that's completely outside of their control, right? Um, it is It is generally, if someone arrives with a child, that person will not be detained throughout the entire duration of their case. They might be held for um, a short amount of time, but there's a, there's a, a sort of ongoing litigation with with a judge's order that has said children cannot stay in immigration detention beyond x amount of time um and so uh people who come with children in recent years typically were released and so then you know they would end up all over the country wherever they might have uh family friends a friend of a friend um, in some cases, you know, uh, a religious organization might decide to take them in if they don't know anybody in this country um, or, or other sort of advocacy groups um, that, that step up to, to sponsor people who don't, don't have anyone here. Uh, but so that could be, could be pretty random. Um, you know, we do see certain nationalities tend to, tend to go certain places. You know, I, I think back to when... Um, we had a lot of, of Haitians arriving at the San Diego border back in 2016. And most of the people I talked to were either headed to Florida or New York, uh, you know, and so there, but not everyone, right? Like there's always, there's always a couple of people who are, who are heading somewhere different. Um, so you have that, that layer. Um, and then if you're held in detention, it's, it's really a matter of bed space. So you might go to the detention center that's really close to where you cross the border you might not. I wrote a story last year about uh, a man from the Democratic Republic of Congo who ended up at a detention center in Georgia, even though he and his family came to the port of entry here in San Diego. So it's 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 really a matter of, of where there are beds at the time that you cross. And again, that's something entirely out of your control. Um, so it's, you know, these decisions that you make of like where I'm going to cross and am I going to bring my child with me? Those are not those are not decisions that a person makes because they're thinking, hmm, what are going to be the best odds of like me winning my case? Right. They're they're big life choices that that people are faced with just just in the in the act of fleeing. And so uh, but those things do seem to to have a real impact when it comes to where you're going to be. And again, that dictates sort of which pool of judges you're you're pulling from. Mm-hmm. And you analyzed millions of records looking at a variety of decisions made by judges, and uh, they appeared somewhat random, I guess is the best way to explain it. So what are some of the common threads that you saw among that when it comes to judges making decisions? Because, you know, these are individual decisions not made in a vacuum. But when you zoom out and look at this whole decade of decisions, what are some common threads? So 
there's definitely um, sort of depending on on which jurisdiction you're in in terms of federal circuit courts that can make a difference. So so no matter the judge's sort of individual leanings, they're also having to make those decisions following the precedents set at those circuit court levels. And when you look back at that asylum definition we talked about a little while ago, um, some of the circuit courts have have interpreted those very differently in a way that can can really impact someone's chances of, of being recognized as a refugee. Um, and so depending on where you go, uh, that can that can also weigh on the judge. Um, we found that people who stay detained tend to be ordered deported at higher rates. We also found that people who uh, did not have any kind of legal help tend to be deported at higher rates. Um, and those two things can can be layered because if you're held in a rural detention center, you're much less likely to have access to an attorney, especially an attorney that you can afford or, or a pro bono attorney. Um, and so those are some of the, the problems in the system that we've we've heard about for years and we, we saw that reflected in the data. Um, in terms of the individual judges themselves, I thought it was really interesting the, the way that the, um, the head of the judges union sort of characterized that when I, when I interviewed her and she talked about, well, you know, even if you look at the Supreme Court, uh, judges can have very different opinions on the same thing, on the same set of facts, on the same evidence, on the same case. You know, and then she was like, and once you start, once you actually have two different cases, like those are, those are even more unique, right? Even if they're fleeing similar sounding things to those of us who are not judges, right? Um, and so she was saying, there's, there's, um, there's another layer to this beyond just what judges choose to do with their decisions. And it's, it's more systemic than that. Mm-hmm. And you also discuss uh, how appeals are becoming much more common. What does that change mean? So um, we've seen, I guess, we were able to analyze data um, at the Board of Immigration Appeals level to see uh, what happens to these cases that, that are appealed. Um, I think it's important to note that that. Um, some people give up before they they appeal their cases, right? Like an appeal is not an automatic thing. Um, if you've already spent more than a year in a detention center and you're going to have to spend several more in order to go through the whole appeals process, you might choose not to do that. Um, and I've I've met people who have who have made that choice. Um, but so if you if you enter into the appeals process, you go to the Board of Immigration Appeals first, um, and we found that in at least um, one in five judges or slightly above one in five judges, uh, the reversal rate from the Board of Immigration Appeals for these cases that we analyzed was 20% or higher. And when you talk to, to legal experts about like, at what sort of level do you start to wonder about reversal rates? That's the bar is 20%. So um, they would say, you know, like for those judges who are hitting that 20% bar or higher, it's important to go and look at all of those decisions and see if there is something like systemic that's happening that, that needs to be corrected or does that judge need to be, you know, trained in a different way or, or what's going on. Um, it could also be that that judge had, you know, a whole bunch of cases on one particular topic and then there was a precedent change and, you know, the, 
all of those cases, decisions got changed. So it's not, it's not saying that like 100%, oh my gosh, these judges are like doing everything wrong, but it's saying this is a red flag. We need to take a closer look. Unfortunately, um, there's not a good way for us to take an individual judge and go look at Board of Immigration Appeals decisions and match those up because the judge's names aren't in them, as far as I found. Um, so that's something that that I would I would like to continue to look at. I've I've recently learned after publishing this that there are actually a couple of of professors who are who are trying to get at some of that. So I'm I'm interested to continue to 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 look at that area. But we do at least know that. Um, you know, that for for some judges, there's a significant amount that are that are changed after their decisions, um, and then past the BIA, you can also go to these circuit courts that we we talked about a minute ago and 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 try to appeal your case there. And so, what we we weren't able to see data with that, but what we can what we do know is that the BIA is becoming more and more influenced by judges who have had these really high denial rates. Um, the Trump administration has hired uh, many of those judges onto the BIA. And so from an immigration attorney's perspective, the BIA is getting more and more stacked against the asylum seeker because it's being stacked with people who are not likely to decide in favor of the asylum seeker. And so, um, you know, I talked to uh, this immigration attorney who wrote the book for for immigration attorneys to know how to do asylum cases, which is like almost 1700 pages long. Um, and she was saying, you know, we we basically have to do every case knowing that it's probably gonna have to go up to the circuit court before we get a win. And so she was saying just how much more attentive they have to be to what ends up in that record so that when it goes up on appeal, uh, it's reviewable by those circuit court judges. Mm-hmm. And hearing you describe this system from top to bottom, it does seem like a decent part of this was designed to be somewhat arbitrary. So how much of this arbitrary nature of this system is inherent in the design? And how much of this has been perhaps intensified during the Trump administration? So when you talk about the design of the system, I think the the thing that's really important to point out and so going back to to what the the head of the judges union told me, um, immigration courts are not in the judicial branch of government. They are in the executive branch of government, which means they're sort of under the president rather than under the branch where we tend to think of judges as existing. And so um, their boss is the attorney general under the Department of Justice. The attorney general is the nation's highest ranking prosecutor. Um, and so the attorney general can reassign cases from the Board of Immigration Appeals to themselves and re-decide those cases. And we've seen that happen over and over again under the Trump administration in order to put out narrower definitions of, of these pieces of asylum law to make them more restrictive and make it harder for people to, to illustrate that their story matches with what that thing is supposed to be. Um, so we've seen that layer of it. And, and so I think what happened is you had this system that was already um, full of bias and, and difficult to navigate and, and sort of, you know, you don't know what's going to happen to you when you enter it as an asylum seeker. 
and it's become more intense that the the restrictions have made have made the ways through even more difficult um and right now you know under the pandemic they're they're not really adding anybody to the system uh, most people who come to the border now are being either immediately sent back to mexico without reviewing why they were here or whether they were trying to get protection or uh, they're being put on planes back to their home countries with, you know, without reviewing that. So that um, that sort of safeguard that we we previously had of allowing people to say, I need protection and sending them through a screening process to look at that, that's not happening anymore. And so um, we do see that things have, have become just more and more and more closed off. But in terms of, of bias and disparities, like that's something that we've seen throughout the history of the way the system has operated. Mm-hmm. And to help kind of paint a better picture of how the system works, uh, you built a simulation to kind of walk people through the series of choices that asylum seekers have to make. Why don't you tell me, what was the decision making behind using this mode of storytelling? It's not exactly a common occurrence. So for most of the time that I've been an immigration reporter, I've had this idea in the back of my head of wanting to find a way to bring bring my readers more into this experience uh, to understand just how how complicated the system is because I think when you navigate it, you you gain a different understanding of how of how something works than sort of watching it from from the outside. And so for readers who, who haven't had any reason to interact with the system, I wanted to, to give them a way to do that that would be um, informative and, and, but also you know, respectful of, of the topic. And, and so I think with, with the way that we did the simulation, we were, we were able to do that to show people you know, these decisions that you're making at the outset you know, is it riskier for my child to stay behind or is it riskier for my child to come with me? Is, you know, where, where along the border am I going to cross? Am I, am I going to go to a port of entry? Am I going to hop the fence and look for a border patrol agent that are, that those decisions can have such a big impact. And so when you're going through and making those decisions, you're, you're getting more of a window into, into how that works. Mm-hmm. And uh, the data behind this project seemed to be pretty terrible. Uh, walk me through some of the challenges that you and Watchdog Data reporter Lauren Schroeder went to make this data actually a useful reporting tool. So the, um, I guess for people who are not data nerds, uh, the best way to explain this is that when you take these tables that are, are published by the government about immigration court cases and you try to open them in Excel, Excel dies, right? Like you, you can't because they're so massive. Um, the tables that we were looking at have like 57 million rows in total, if you add up all the tables together. Um, and so we had to use a special coding language in order to, to read them. That code is called R. Um, and so Lauren and I worked together to try to, to put the tables together in a way that we could see the stories of these cases and what had happened to them uh, in order to analyze the results. And, uh, you know, there, there are tables where, for example, the column of gender is barely filled out. 
right? And so we can't do an analysis on, you know, do men or women have a higher or lower likelihood of, of winning asylum because the data is just not, not tracked. Um, you know, and there's, there's tons of other examples like that, like um, flagging whether or not someone already has a green card. Um, and we wanted to filter those folks out of the system because they would have already been here. And, and what we were really trying to analyze and, and get as close as we could to are, again, the people who are, who are asking for asylum at the border. And because that itself is not a tracked data item, we weren't able to just filter specifically to that group. We had to try to eliminate what we could of, of people that we could say that person is definitely not part of that group. Um, and anybody that we weren't sure about, we had to leave in. So, um, so that was definitely, you know, a, a difficulty with the data. Um, there were also just, you know, weird, like misshapen columns where it looked like when they exported the data, things had gotten shifted over. And so the wrong thing was in the wrong place. And, um, and then in terms of understanding the data, there are columns that they don't release, like, uh, so they release these other tables where you can look and see, okay, what does the R in this column mean? What does the N in this column mean? Um, and, and in some, some of the columns, it's pretty easy to figure out what those things mean. And for other columns, we had these, these lookup tables is what they're called. But for other columns, we didn't have anything. Um, and so in one case, I was actually able to do a public, rec public records request and get the, the definition table. But in other cases, um, we weren't able to do that or, or decided to work around it. And so, um, you know, the way the data is released does not make it uh, transparent or easy for other folks to, to work with in order to try and understand what's going on or, or check that the information we're being given from the government is correct, which is, you know, as journalists, just part of our job to like, you know, double check things and, um, the state of the data makes it really difficult to do that. It took us months and months to like sort of crack open and, and, and be able to work with it. Yeah. It's like this data kind of sounds like the illusion of transparency in which, you know, uh, someone working into the PR office of something can give you this and just kind of walk away from it full, knowing full well that this isn't actually helpful until you put in hours and hours and months of work to translate it into actual useful reporting material. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, the the thing that really stands out to me, too, is we kept going back to the agency that releases this data and saying, you know, we have questions about this. Can you explain this column or can you tell us about this? Or when you do these calculations, is this how you do it? And they wouldn't help us at all with those questions. They refused. They they told us that they um, they don't have to help us with the data. That they're following their legal obligation to release it, and that's that's that. Um, so we had to you know rely on other means. And and thankfully, we're not the only journalists on the planet who are trying to understand this data. So you know we're very grateful to the people who came before us and who you know, have published notes on it or were willing to get on the phone with us and, and, and talk us through it a little bit because, um, it was not easy. <laughs> yeah. And now that this, uh, second portion of returned is out, what's the response that you're getting from readers? The, the response has been just overwhelming and, and humbling on so many, so many levels. Um, so many people saying thank you that, that, you know, just, 
super impressed by the level of investigation and, and the, the data analysis. Um, I had a law professor tell me they're going to add this to their syllabus for the fall, which is, you know, I never dreamed that we would be um, making that level of, of impact on people with it. You know, I mean, when you work on something like this, you always hope that people are going to notice and you think you're doing something important, but then that reality of, of response is just uh, incredible. And, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to everyone who's, who's taken the time to, to message me or, or retweet the story. Um, my phone's been blowing up since I woke up yesterday morning. So thank you. <laughs> and uh, finally, what's next? So uh, there are two more parts to the series. Um, if you'll remember, we published one part actually back in February. And then um, with everything that's happened with the pandemic, it took us a little longer to publish this part than I uh, had anticipated, but it's it's finally out. And so now I'll be turning my attention to part three, um, which is going to take a closer look, um, uh, particularly at Honduras, where a photographer and I traveled back in November. Um, and some of the the gray areas in asylum law that are, are particularly influencing cases from, from Honduras and, and what that means for people who are fleeing from uh, some of the different kinds of violence and persecution in that country. Mm -hmm. All right. Kate Morrissey, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. If you want to include the San Diego Union-Tribune in your morning routine, check out our Daily Flash Briefing. Every weekday morning, hear a quick summary of the day's top stories. Just search San Diego Union-Tribune wherever you get your podcasts, including smart speakers. Until next time.